0: On the 12th of April, 1899, 24-year-old black American Sam Hosed asked his employer, Alfred Cranford in Georgia, if he could have some time off work and an advance in payment to visit his sick mother. The two men ended up arguing, and Cranford drew his pistol and threatened to kill Hosed, who retaliated by flinging his axe. Hitting Cranford in the head. And killing him instantly. Hose fled. The following day, newspapers ran the story. Some reported that Hose had also sexually assaulted Cranford's wife and even tried to murder their baby. The Atlanta Constitution informed its readers that when Hose is caught, he will be either lynched and his body riddled with bullets, or he will be burnt at the stake. It continued that. There have been whisperings of burning at the stake and of torturing the fellow, and so great is the excitement and so high the indignation, that this is among the possibilities. The search for hose continued for the next few days. Four days later, the Atlanta Constitution reported that the residents have shown no disposition to abandon the search in the immediate neighbourhood of Palmetto. Their ardour has in no degree cooled and if Sam Hose is brought here by his captors, he will be publicly burned at the stake as an example to members of his race, who are said to have been causing the residents of this vicinity trouble for some time. The editor even offered a $500 reward for Hose's capture. One local said that, if Hose is on earth, I'll never rest easy until he's caught and burned alive. And that's the way all of us feel. A few days later, on the 23rd, officers found an arrested Hose. Instead of taking him into custody, though, they took him to the nearby town of Newman, where a crowd was already gathering. A special train was organised to transport visitors from all over the state to join the growing mob. It was a Sunday. So most of the visitors went from church in the morning to the lynching of Hoes in the afternoon. The crowd grew to around 200 men, women and children. A witness reported afterwards that, after stripping Hoes of his clothes and chaining him to a tree, the self-appointed executioners stacked kerosene-soaked wood high around him, before saturating Hoes with oil and applying the torch. They cut off his ears, fingers and genitals and skinned his face. While some in the crowd plunged knives into the victim's flesh, others watched with unfeigning satisfaction as one reporter noted, the contortions of Sam Hose's body as the flames rose, distorting his features, causing his eyes to bulge out of their sockets and rupturing his veins. Before Hose's body had even cooled, his heart and liver were removed and cut into several pieces, and his bones were crushed into small particles. A crowd fought over the souvenirs. What caused such pride and violence? Between 1889 and 1930, there were around 3,700 known lynchings in the US. The perpetrators ranged from single people, to small mobs, to huge crowds of around 15,000. The reasons given were broad. While most victims were accused of murder or rape, many were lynched simply for being rude, for arguing for taking the wrong job or having the wrong beliefs. In 1935, for example, a mob lynched Reuben Stacy for frightening a white woman. In the days following his death, people from across the state travelled to see Stacy's body. One photo, this one, shows a young girl not looking traumatised or afraid, but excited and when an anti-lynching advocate was travelling to visit the site of a lynching, he came across three children walking to school near the site. They asked him if he was going to the place where the had been killed. They then described the scene, in his words, animatedly, almost as joyously as though the memory were of a Christmas morning or of the circus, talking about the fun they'd had, burning the Like during the Holocaust, as I explored in a previous video, these were ordinary men, women and often children. And as in my exploration of the psychology of the perpetrators of the Holocaust, I want to try and understand the factors that led both to the violence of lynchings, but also ask how ordinary Americans justified their racism more broadly. In doing so, the purpose is to search for a kind of moral and cultural vaccine, an inoculation, that learns from some of the worst events in the past to try to understand how we can recognise the warning signs in the present and guide us towards some kind of better future. First, a quick history. After the southern states lost the Civil War in 1865, Congress passed the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery and freeing around 4 million slaves. The atmosphere, for many, quickly turned from a celebratory one to a difficult one. The economics of the cotton fields, the culture of racism, and the complexity of politics all, of course, persisted. The Southern states quickly passed a series of black codes aimed at controlling and oppressing the newly freed slaves. Groups like the Ku Klux Klan, the White Brotherhood, the Pale Faces, the Invisible Empire, the Knights of White Camellia, and the Constitutional Union Guard quickly formed to agitate for a return to the past, to frightening newly freed slaves into submission, and to unify the South and perpetuate white supremacy. In his 1867 State of the Union Address, President Andrew Jackson said that, It must be acknowledged that in the progress of nations, Negroes have shown less capacity for government than any other race of people. No independent government of any form has ever been successful in their hands. On the contrary, wherever they have been left to their own devices, they have shown a constant tendency to relapse into barbarism. The lynching era, which peaked in the five decades between 1880 and 1930, saw thousands of African Americans lynched in the southern states. Many of the participants in lynch mobs were ordinary men and women who, if asked, would likely and often did say that it was the only way to protect against black aggression and to defend the natural God given racial order of the world. John T. Brown, keeper of Georgia Penitentiary said in 1876 that the only difference existing between coloured convicts and the coloured people at large consists in the fact that the former have been caught in the commission of a crime, tried and convicted, while the latter have not. The entire race is destitute of character. In 1906 the Atlanta Journal warned that the black man is growing more bumptious on the street more impudent in his dealings with white men, and then, when he cannot achieve social equality as he wishes, with the instinct of the barbarian to destroy what he cannot attain to, he lies in wait, as that dastardly brute did yesterday near this city, and assaults the fair young girlhood of the south. James Cutler wrote the first academic study of lynching in 1905. He said, quote, "...lynching has been resorted to by whites not merely to wreak vengeance, but to terrorise and restrain this lawless element in the Negro population. Among Southern people, the conviction is general that terror is the only restraining influence that can be brought to bear upon vicious Negroes." One member of a lynch mob said that, I reckon folks from the North think we're hard on Negroes, but they just don't know what would happen to the white people if they ran wild like they would if we didn't show them who's boss. If that Negro out there in the woods gets jumped before the Sheriff finds him, it will all be over and done with by sundown, and everybody will be satisfied. I want to use lynchings to try and examine racism more broadly, taking an action, a violent event, and slowly zooming outwards, looking at the psychological, the sociological and historical conditions that led to it, we'll look at a number of what I'll describe in various ways as justifications, rationalisations, or just causes or factors, to try to understand what led to that violence, and how the beliefs, attitudes and psychologies of perpetrators were produced more broadly. We'll look at propaganda, sexuality, scientific racism, nostalgia, economics, stereotypes, and first, the power of a feeling of defeat and victimhood on behalf of white southerners. Perpetrators of violence often see themselves as victims the subject of some kind of injustice, either in the past or ongoing, which heightens a feeling of being threatened, a feeling of fear. In her 1947 autobiography, Making of a Southerner, Catherine Dupree Lumpkin remembers that during her childhood she inherited a feeling of a lost cause from her father who had fought in the Civil War. She heard, quote, Words and phrases at all times intimately familiar to southern ears and in those years of harsh excitement carrying a special urgency. White supremacy, negro domination, intermarriage, social equality, impudence, inferiority, uppertiness, good darky, bad darky, keep them in their place. Defeat after the war lent itself to a sense of fear, of being under siege, of Almost being ruled by a foreign power and a concern of black retaliation of newly freed slaves with animalistic instincts, no reason, no logical capacity in their minds, incapable of governing themselves. the post-bellum period saw the emergence of a new stereotype, the black brute, monstrous, lustful, and in white supremacist Senator Ben Tillman's words, a fiend. A wild beast, seeking whom he may devour, filling our penitentiaries and our jails, lurking around to see if some helpless white woman can be murdered or brutalised. Emancipation had supposedly created a new brutish African-American and destroyed the old image of the loyal slave. The children's book Diddy, Dumps & Tot declared in the preface that I know whereof I do speak and it's to tell of the pleasant and happy relations that existed between master and slave. In 1901, George T. Winston wrote that, When a knock is heard at the door, the southern woman shudders with nameless horror. In 1903, William Lee Howard wrote in a medical journal of the sexual madness and an increase in the rape of white women, through which, quote, we see evidence of racial instincts that are about as amenable to ethical culture as is the inherent odour of the race. The problem, he wrote in the journal, was the large size of the black man's penis and the lack of the sensitiveness of the terminal fibres which exists in the Caucasian. The well-known lawyer Thomas Nelson Page wrote that, The crime of lynching is not likely to cease until the crime of ravishing and murdering women and children is less frequent than it has been of late. The Negro had the same animal instincts in slavery as he exhibits now. The Negro does not generally believe in the virtue of women, it's beyond his comprehension. Popular novels like Thomas Dixon's 1905 The Klansman* described African-Americans as half-child, half-animal, the sport of impulse, whim and conceit, a being who, left to his will, roams at night and sleeps in the day, whose speech knows no word of love, whose passions once aroused, are as the fury of the tiger. Mississippi Governor James Vardaman said that if it's necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched. It will be done to maintain white supremacy. So the defeat after the war and the sight of so many freed slaves led to the development of this brute caricature, a feeling of victimhood and fear. This coexisted with a sense of nostalgia for slavery, for the good old days, for the grand houses and the subservient african American who was grateful and even happy to be in the care of the white man. And These stereotypes also existed alongside others, creating a culture of expectations around how black Americans should act and how whites should construct their own views and their own place in American society. Propaganda, philosopher Jason Stanley writes, uses the language of virtuous ideals to unite people behind otherwise objectionable ends. For the most part in the South, propagandistic stereotypes of African Americans were spread through education, children's books, novels, films, and advertising. The stereotypes informed most white southerners' views of black Americans. Justifying both racism and lynching was based on a genuine belief in these caricatures. If you believe a stereotype to be true, of course, it's easier to justify unpleasant necessities. A number of themes intersected in the literature, film, advertising, and common attitudes that depicted black Americans – frightfulness, laziness, backwardness, and intelligence being inarticulate, violent, sexually mad, unable to control themselves, and in need of care. The Coon stereotype depicted African Americans as lazy, the Pickaninny as dirty and animalistic. Both suggested that African Americans were incapable of self-government. the mamu auntie sambo or uncle were depicted as grateful and servile they were often represented with childish features or as easily frightened and able to understand simple things or to care for themselves this 1914 cream of wheat advert for example depicts the uncle tom stereotype the faithful aged servant with a phrase gid-up uncle that reduces him to an animal, a beast of burden, at the boy's command. Stereotypes were exaggerations that drew on a variety of ideas in support of white supremacy. In her autobiography, Anne McCarty Braden remembers from her childhood that one of the things a child learns by osmosis, without anyone ever putting it into words, that I was one of the better human beings more privileged because my people came of a superior stock. In her autobiography, Lumpkin remembers the combined feeling of fear and supremacy. She thought that to be ruled by Negroes, the slave ruling over the master, only white supremacy could counter this disaster, injustice, and outrage. Africans, it was taught in church, were descendants of Ham, the biblical son of Noah, the first black man, and Africans were cursed by God for all of time to atone by servitude for Ham's sin of dishonouring his father. Thomas Jefferson, who had owned slaves, wrote that In general, their existence seems to participate more of sensation than reflection. To this must be ascribed their disposition to sleep when abstracted from their diversions and unemployed in labour. An animal whose body is at rest, and who does not reflect, must be disposed to sleep, of course. It's not against experience to suppose that different species of the same genus, or varieties of the same species, may possess different qualifications. Surrounded by impoverished, uneducated, and depressed black Americans, whites didn't find it difficult to believe that they were naturally superior that that's just the way the world seemed to be, and this colour line between the races had to be protected for another reason – racial purity. Disgust, squeamishness and revulsion are all, as we know, powerful feelings, and scientific racism created a fear that even the touch of African-Americans might transmit germs and genes that could threaten the purity of the white race. The power of beliefs like this can be illustrated by a recollection from the diary of Melton McLaurin. He recalls an incident from his childhood when he and a black friend he was playing with found their basketball flat. His friend took the inflation needle to blow up the ball and applied, quote, a lavish amount of saliva. When it came to McLaurin's turn, he was horrified imagining the black germs entering his body and jeopardising his own racial purity. He responded angrily, throwing the ball at his friend and rushing to rinse out his mouth. Another author remembers the horrifying moment when his mother found his brother in the act of taking alternate bites off an apple with a negro boy. In her autobiography, Lumpkin returned home from university and told her family that she'd shared a meal with a black man. Her brother replied, what? You ate with a negro? Daddy, I don't want to eat with Alice if she's been eating with negroes. May I be excused? He was. Boyle recalls in her autobiography how you never, never, never sat at a table with a negro in your own dining room. There were even concerns about laundrettes washing the clothes of whites and blacks together. These feelings went hand in hand with attitudes about masculinity, as white southern men needed to feel that they remained in control of women's bodies to protect them from impurity and prevent racial mixing. After Caleb Campbell was lynched in 1882, a note pinned to his body read, Our mothers, wives and sisters shall be protected even with our lives. This type of language was common. Another note on Nathan Bonnet's body read, our wives, mothers, sisters and daughters shall be respected. The colour line then had to be respected, had to be protected, but it was also made easier to believe in by the common idea that the white race were actually protecting and looking after African Americans too, even if they didn't know it even if they didn't appreciate it. What the scientific racism of the day often led to was the powerful belief that African-Americans actually needed caring for, like any other lower animal. Negative attitudes could be rationalised as being part of the greater good for society and whites, but African-Americans too, a white man's burden. In one pamphlet The KKK declared that the clans have always considered the problem of the Negro race one worthy of most careful consideration because the Emancipation Proclamation freed a great band of Negroes who did not know the first thing about caring for themselves and many of whom did not want to be free. Boyle wrote in her autobiography that her mother loved Negroes. But with the same deep tenderness she lavished on her riding horses, her dogs, and other pets. Her thoughts were saturated with the assumption that Negroes belonged to a lower order of man than we. Lawton Evans widely read The Essential Facts of American History told readers that freed slaves had no money, no food, and nobody to care for them, Some of them became vicious and even thought they could take by force what they needed. The children's book, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, depicted a group of childlike black people on Spider Monkey Island that looked just as much like a monkey. Doolittle said that they are, as it were, my children. The cultural attitude would not be able to sustain itself for very long without the people who adopted it believing it was for some kind of greater good. Whites viewed African-Americans as figures of fun, of care, of entertainment and comedy too, inducing positive feelings as well as negative ones. Lumpkin remembers a story her father told when he was a member of the KKK of them tricking an African-American into thinking he was being visited by the ghost of a Confederate soldier. We thought it was funny to an extreme, she said. Our shrill young laughter would ring out whenever it was told. And did it scare them, we would ask. One children's book, Little Germsy Henry, tells of a young black boy's attempt to make some extra money by helping whites. His clumsiness and simple-mindedness undermines his attempts, though. His father, working at the circus, is also reduced to entertaining whites and acting in a similar stereotypical way. The 1921 Sears catalogue, a central pillar of mainstream American culture, had a famous Alabama c*** toy. The description said that it was a realistic dancing negro who goes through the movements of a lively jig. Very amusing and fascinating. Wind up the spring and start him off. This happy little darky can't keep from dancing, he seems to like it, too. Carnivals had games like Dump the and Coo-Dip, and games that involved throwing things at or hitting black Americans. And lynchings often had the feel of carnivals, as children took time off school and victims were paraded on carts behind horses. In 1911, the newspaper The Intelligencer reported that one of its staff had gone to see the fun of the lynching of Willis Jackson. Lumpkin recounts her disappointment when she encountered African Americans working in the field. She presumed, from what she'd read, that they would be singing and happy, joking and smiling. She said, I'd thought that they would treat me deferentially, of course, as would be right to the white landowner's daughter. But also outgoingly, responding with hearty pleasure to my little attempts to be friendly. They were polite when I spoke to them, but so reticent it seemed, so very remote, a yes ma'am or a no ma'am, and nothing else much besides." It's these stereotypes that created a cultural matrix of positive and negative feelings for whites. The varied caricatures meant that the fear Tough love, punishment, and violence towards African Americans were justified in the eyes of white southerners because of the positive feelings they had of paternalism, humour, entertainment, nostalgia, the good old days that ultimately sustained a powerful rationalisation for oppression and violence. Of course, All of this had to be transferred through generations and codified into a strict system of social rules and cultural norms. Children were socialised through clubs like the Junior KKK and the Children of the Confederacy. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, founded in 1894, wanted to keep alive the sacred principles for which southern men and boys fought so bravely. By 1905 it had over 100,000 members, and by 1929 it had 22,500 children members. It still exists today. Children salute the Confederate flag and sing Confederate songs. Southern publishing houses started producing new textbooks that taught children to keep the lost cause of the Confederacy alive. Historian Mildred Lewis Rutherford wrote in her textbook that Don't say you believe that the South was right, say you know she was right. Another textbook described African Americans as docile, being able to work in the field better than the white man, faithful, black, humble, heathen, and practising wild African customs. African history for grammar schools described African Americans as ignorant and unfit to govern themselves. Most relied upon, perpetuated, and even created new versions of the stereotypes and caricatures we've seen, creating a sense of nostalgia for the past and describing slavery as good for African Americans. Charles and Mary Beard's 1921 History of the United States said that, Slavery was no crime, it was an actual benefit to the slaves. The beneficial effects of slavery were proved, they said by the fact that the slaves were happier, more comfortable, and more intelligent than their ancestors in Africa, and it was believed that they were better off in bondage than they would be if they were free. Another said that the condition of slaves generally was not a hard one. They were well cared for, with good cabins to live in and plenty to eat. All day long they worked in the fields and at night sang their songs around the fires of the negro quarters. Textbooks described African Americans as having love and affection for their masters and as being grateful they were being cared for, and the socialisation of white children was also a part of the most violent educational event – the lynching. During one in 1893 in Paris, Texas. The mayor gave the children the day off school so their families could watch and celebrate as a lynch victim was drawn through town on a carnival float pulled by four white horses. Another school in 1915 also reported that it was delaying teaching until pupils could get back from viewing the lynched man. Children sometimes assisted women in getting wood for the fires. One report from Waco in 1916 at the lynching of Jesse Washington said that they got a little boy to light the fire. Legally, you could not arrest a little boy. One newspaper reported that they forced a 10-year-old white lad who carried water around the camp to take a large butcher knife and unsex him. We can see in lynchings a whole constellation of cultural attitudes, from entertainment, to protecting against impurity, to popular justice. But can they help us dig deeper, to uncover any other factors and causes that could lead to such gleeful violence? Of course, during slavery, the underlying cause at the heart of the system had one central star, around which everything else revolved. Economics. Slaves, ultimately of course, were profit. In their now classic study, Stuart E. Tolney and E. M. Beck looked at the relationship between lynchings and the economics of the south. Most of the counties where lynchings occurred, for example, had economies that were far below The national average. A Southern Commission on the Study of Lynching found that, by almost every variable, from tax receipts to bank deposits to profit to automobile ownership, the counties where lynchings happened were far below the national average. In the years after the Civil War, The phenomenon of whitecapping meant scaring black families into leaving their homes and jobs as white workers responded to the competition for work from newly freed black men. One newspaper reported that Ellie Hilson, a negro, living eight miles from Brookhaven, was assassinated Sunday while on the way from town alone in his buggy. Last winter, Hilson was warned by whitecaps to leave, which he disregarded. About three or four weeks ago, his home was visited in the night by whitecaps and several volleys fired into it. He still disregarded the warning and remained in his place. Hilson is the second Negro murdered by whitecaps in that portion of Lincoln County within the last month, and the other Negroes are greatly alarmed over the situation. But how do economics have anything to do with lynchings when African Americans were accused of murder or rape? which made up around 82% of the killings. There was a belief, a justification, widespread throughout the era, that the legal system would fail to prosecute or would be too lenient. And it was this reason that was often given for extrajudicial murders. It was also widely believed that it was inherently unfair and ethically wrong that a lesser race was treated in the same way as a higher one different types of punishment, different legal systems, a different process would be more appropriate. Animals, after all, were not afforded due process. After Reeves Smith's killing in 1886, for example, the Desoto Soto Democrats reported that while we deplore the necessity for mob law, we must commend it in this instance. For if the accused had been convicted of an attempt at rape, the penalty would only have been two years which is worse than farce. All such monsters should be disposed of in a summary manner. However, Tolney and Beck find no relationship between the rate of convictions across counties and the rate of lynchings in those counties at those times. They conclude that the idea of what's been called popular mob justice, motivated simply by the accusation of a serious crime, does not adequately explain the frequency of violence. Instead, looking at the data, they find that lynchings have four main functions. To remove specific people accused of crimes, as state-sanctioned terrorism to intimidate and control the black population, to eliminate economic, social and political competitors, as community building in support of white supremacy, Ultimately, they describe what they call a threat model of lynchings. As we've seen, southern whites felt themselves under siege. They'd lost the civil war, were socialised through stereotypes, caricatures, and scientific racism. And four million black men and women had suddenly gone from being subservient to being their economic, social, and political competitors. They found that African Americans were more likely to be attacked when whites' access to privileged and scarce resources – whether economic, social, political, or otherwise – were challenged. It could be food, jobs, political offices, land, or women. Whenever whites felt their position was under threat, the rate of lynching increased. Furthermore, lynchings also increased in frequency in counties with higher percentages of African Americans, where the perception of threat was more pronounced. Lynchings were twice as likely in cotton-dominant areas. For poor whites, then, lynchings were a response to the economic threat of black competitors, whereas for landowning whites, violence could prevent the threat of any coalition between poor whites and blacks. The peak of the lynching era coincided with the decline in demand for king cotton in the 1890s. As cotton prices rose and the situation improved, lynchings fell until the post-World War I period when cotton prices again fell and many African Americans returning from serving in the army were murdered. Tony and Beck summarized their findings like this: Within the cotton economy, poorer whites looked for a small piece of land to buy or a tenant farm with good soil. Well-to-do whites looked for reliable tenants to occupy their fragmented landholdings and tried to replace the slave labour lost through emancipation. Blacks struggled to find a niche that would represent at least some improvement over slavery. The issue of race aggravated an already volatile situation wealthier whites resented the need to treat former slaves as free labour and the resultant loss of control over workers, and poorer whites resented having to compete with the inferior caste for economic survival. Their material analysis of lynchings shows that racism in the south was tied to the production of cotton long after slaves were freed, and only abated with the transition to a modern, technological, industrial economy. As many labourers were replaced with mechanisation, like tractors, and as factory work replaced agriculture, and as African Americans embarked on the Great Migration away from the south to the northern cities. This is a difficult topic to summarise. Tony and Beck say that these were ordinary folks who did unspeakable things. They say, quote, that They were not monsters who temporarily assumed the persona of Southern Whites, they were the town barber, the local blacksmith, and even the county sheriff. Clearly they must have been swept along by very strong social forces to feel justified in committing more than 2,000 atrocities against their black neighbours. How can we, from this historical distance, even begin to understand those strong social forces? Well, as we've seen, they were a sense of victimhood and defeat, of fear, and a culture of caricatures and stereotypes. Psychologist Irvin Stubb has argued that genocide becomes more likely when difficult life conditions frustrate basic human needs. These needs can be the need for security, a feeling of control, the need for a positive identity and social connections, and of course, the need for food, water, and shelter. All of these things created what Tony and Beck describe as the threat model. As the sense of threat of losing these things increases, the likelihood of violence increases too. But these feelings of threat were accompanied by a pervasive culture of scientific racism, of nostalgia, of paternalism, that seemed to lead most to believe that this was something they were doing, ultimately, for the greater good. Just a quick note to say, thank you so much for watching. This is obviously a difficult topic and a video on a subject like this would not be made without the support of these incredible Patreons who get access to scripts. Have a Discord server and have their names in the credits. I'm trying to work out ways to make Patreon even more attractive to you, wonderful people. So, if you'd like to help make videos like this, click the link below and and go to patreon.com forward slash then and now. If you can't do that, like, share, all the rest, uh, sign up to the newsletter, follow me on your favorite podcast, Catcher, and leave a comment below. Thank you.